This talk was given at the Insight Meditation Society on October 9, 1982. The speaker is Joseph Goldstein. The topic, Impermanence and Suffering, Noble Truths 1 and 2. I'd like to begin tonight's talk with a question for you. And the question is, what is the nature of your mind? Rather than wait for an answer, (laughs) maybe you could take a minute or two to look. If you look real carefully, you might be able to go home. (laughs) What is the nature of the mind? What is the mind? There's some fantastic thing happening with all of us. You know, our lives and our actions and our relationships and our worldviews and our feelings. And somehow all of this is happening in the mind. What is it? What's the nature of it? How is it working? How do we get lost in it? How do we get liberated? Krishnamurti expressed it very well in one of his teachings when he said that it's the truth which liberates and not your efforts to be free. Because efforts to be free simply someone, some ego, some self making a big effort to attain something. And it's not that which actually brings liberation or freedom. It's the truth itself which liberates. Can you sense just from that the difference of energy movement of practice? Efforts to be free is a reaching out there someplace someplace ahead of us, someplace outside of ourselves. The truth is what liberates, brings the whole practice back into ourselves. It's not outside of ourselves to look for, but rather to open to the truth which we are. how to understand, how to uncover the truth of ourselves, of our minds, how can we come to an understanding of it? It seems very simple. If we want to understand the nature of the mind, we look. And we look carefully. Because as you know, the mind is so subtle and so tricky. One yogi expressed it in in an interview once by saying, after watching their minds for a couple of weeks, that the mind has no pride. (laughs) 
you know, it will do anything. And it does. It does do everything. Very subtle, very subtle thing we're about. You know, to somehow come to a clarity of understanding with respect to the nature of ourselves, of our minds. The literal meaning of vipassana, it's a Pali word, and it means to see things clearly. That is, to see things as they are. And so all of our practice is just that. Contrary to what you may be thinking now, the idea of the retreat is not for you to learn how to walk slowly. (laughs) That's not the purpose. The purpose is to see things clearly and then to employ whatever means we can to enable us to do that. Nature of the mind. It's an enormously, ultimately, creative energy. Everything that we are, everything that we experience, is created out of the energy of mind. Our bodies, our relationships, our environment, our society. In the Buddhist scriptures it's said even that this very planet has been created to fulfill the karmic destiny of the beings on it. Maybe. (laughs) Don't discount it. It's possible. It's possible. So there's this enormous creative energy that we are, which is our minds. And as you've seen, it's conditioned by so many factors. It's conditioned by love. It's conditioned by fear. It's conditioned by wisdom. It's conditioned by delusion. It's conditioned by generosity. It's conditioned by suffering. In order to understand the nature of the mind, we have to look at each of these manifestations. The mind as it manifests in each moment, in order to come to some kind of comprehensive understanding of how it works. What is it that we begin to say as we look very carefully, with that sense of close attention to our experience? What do we find? We begin to see, to experience in ourselves, that every single aspect and quality of experience, of ourselves, of our nature, is in change, is impermanent. And no matter what level we look at, we can look at the mind moment level and see just that instantaneous arising and passing away. We can look at the level of of our bodies, that is, being born and getting older and getting sick and dying. We can look at the level of cultures, 
civilizations coming into being, lasting, dying. Look at the level of the planet. You know, four and a half billion years ago, it was created from various conditions and causes, and another four and a half billion years or so, it'll explode or collapse or whatever it'll do. This earth is not permanent, it's not going to last. The solar system, the galaxies, I mean, isn't it interesting that at whatever level of perception we have, if we're looking carefully, we'll see that things are changing. What's so extraordinary in our lives is that this truth, which is so apparent and so obvious and so clear, as soon as we begin to pay attention, is so ignored. And we live our lives as if things are permanent. That is, we get attached to things. We resist things. How often in this last week have you been slightly depressed and had the thought about it that it was going to last forever? <laughs> now, in the middle of that depression, were you able to remember, really remember, clearly remember, that it was just a passing state? You're sitting and pain comes, you know, unpleasant sensation. Can we experience that? Can we understand it? <clears throat> Do we relate to it as being impermanent? Not usually. Pleasant things, you know, wonderful states, happy relationships, nice surroundings, good environment, whatever. How do we relate to that pleasantness in our lives? Attachment, grasping. We like to hold on. We like to make it last forever. And then we suffer when it doesn't. The refinement of practice has to do with this increasing clarity and recognition and, to quote Robert Heinlein, grokking of impermanence. Not just to know it in our intellects, because it's not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't influence, it doesn't affect the way we live our lives then. We have to make that understanding real for us. How to make it real? By careful observation. And again, it's careful observation at any level, at any speed, you want to carefully observe. Because that truth of impermanence operates on all levels. So where in our lives, in the nature of this mind, in the nature of our experience, where does suffering come from? Why are we all here? Trungpa Rinpoche expressed it nicely, as he often does. He described this sense of suffering in the Buddhist, Buddhist way as being that sense of things being not quite right. 
not quite right in our lives. Something slightly out of sync, or largely out of sync, right? but that's that out of sync anyway, to some extent. That is some lack of a real, genuine, total sense of completion, or wholeness, or fullness, or freedom, or liberation. There's something in all of us that is fueling our quest. People do not come to this place for a good time. (laughs) So what's behind it? And a lot of people keep coming. So what actually is going on? You know, it's the sense, it's the growing sense, and in some way, fortunately for the Dharma, our times are contributing to the sense of things being not quite right. A sense of really entertaining the possibility that there's another way of understanding, perhaps a more complete way of understanding the nature of our minds, who we are, So where does the suffering come from in our lives? And not necessarily major, dramatic suffering, even if it's just that slight discontent or searching or seeking. Where does that come from? What's the cause of suffering? The cause of suffering is attachment. Just let that enter you for a moment and and let it sit. The cause of suffering is attachment, is clinging, is grasping. Because that statement has profound implications for your practice here and for your life. Because what it's saying is that the cause of suffering does not lie in what it is that's happening, but rather in how we relate to what's happening. And yet most of us spend our lives trying to avoid suffering, or get out of suffering, by arranging what it is that's happening in our lives, thinking that that's going to create happiness. It reminds me of a Nasruddin story. He's outside one night, underneath this lamppost, and he's scrounging around in the dirt. And he's looking and looking and searching, and his friends come and ask him what he's looking for. He said, oh, the key to my house. So they get down on the ground, and they're looking and scrounging and searching. They can't find it. And one of his friends asked him, well, where did you lose it? He said, oh, in the house. They said, why are you looking here? Because there's more light out here. We do exactly the same thing. So, notice the tone of laughter. (laughs) Because we're laughing at ourselves. We look for happiness, we look for fulfillment, we look for completion. Where the light is, 
but not where it is, not where it lies. Because we're looking in the things, the content, the situation of our lives rather than how we're relating to it. Do you get a sense of the possibility of the tremendous relief when you realize that whatever is happening is fine. There's no problem with what's happening. Think what that means for your sitting. No struggle, no problem, no need to make it any different. Because the whole question of suffering is not in what's happening, but how we relate to what's happening. How do we relate to what's happening? We relate with attachment, if it's pleasant. We relate with aversion, if it's unpleasant. Right there we have the conflict. And what's so interesting, as the practice goes on and the refinement of attention increases, is that we go from these gross movements of mind, of attachment and aversion, to where we can see the subtle, the most subtle, waverings of the mind, the slight reaching out for something, or the slight pushing away. And it becomes so wonderful to begin to create and experience in ourselves the possibility of equilibrium, of equanimity, true and profound equanimity. That equanimity which is the quality of total openness to experience rather than trying to alter the experience so that we'll be happy. What do we get attached to? If attachment is so much the root cause of suffering, whether we're sitting here in the hall or walking or you're in your daily life, it doesn't matter because the nature of the mind is identical. The nature of your mind does not change when you come into the hall. And it's important to see that because then you see clearly that the implications of what you do here have very great ramifications for the understanding of how you live your life. It's the same principles involved. It's the same life unfolding. if we can begin to see that experience is changing. And because things are changing, attachment causes suffering. If we try to hold on to that which in its nature is changing, then we suffer. But we get seduced into that attachment very often. And so it's helpful to look at some of the areas the common areas that we all get attached to, so as to become more sensitized to them, more aware of them. One of the biggest areas of attachment for all of us in our lives is the attachment to sense pleasures. We like sense pleasures. And not only do we like them, we cling to them and we grasp them. 
It's very important at this point to understand that there is nothing wrong with sense pleasures because people often misinterpret that. Sense pleasures are fine. They're just different experiences coming to us. The problem is that we don't pay careful attention to the experience of them and because of that lack of awareness the mind is in the habit of holding on, of attachment. And it's the attachment to them which causes the suffering. And so very much part of the practice is to pay close attention, a detailed attention, to the sense objects that we experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensations in the body. And to see how the mind is relating to those experiences. Can we be mindful of them? That is, open to them, experience them, without the grasping, without the clinging. And we practice that because our minds are conditioned by different habits and we've been in the habit of attachment, of holding on. And really what we're doing here is deconditioning that habit through the power of awareness. So when we see something and it's beautiful, a beautiful sunset or a totally blissful sensation, or a pleasant thought, because in the Buddhist sense, the mind is simply the sixth sense, with thought and emotion as objects. When a pleasant object arises, can we be aware enough to feel it and to be with it without grasping? And to look carefully. It's very interesting to observe the nature of desire. This is all part of the truth which liberates. And so when desire comes into the mind, that kind of sense desire, the holding on, it's not to relate to that with condemning and aversion, because here's a gift for us. And here's a chance for us to learn about, to explore the quality of desire. And it's very interesting now, if you had to express in a movement, if you had to express in a movement what the energy of desire is like, of wanting, how would you do it? Probably that, you know, just reaching out and wanting. Look what that does. Not only does it pull us out of the moment towards some object out here, and so in that sense, throws us very off balance. You see how closing it is. It's as if the mind closes in on the object of desire. So our mind is in that very fixated state. To experience the nature of that, not, not so it's simply a concept in our minds, but so that we become very familiar. We become very familiar and friendly, very friendly with the quality of desire. We've learned about that manifestation of mind. And an interesting part of this process is that as soon as we become mindful of that energy configuration of desire for sense pleasure, as soon as we become aware of that, 
there's a relaxing back into the moment. We're not caught by it or identified with it. But attachment to sense pleasures, that's a very common area where we get caught over and over again. Pleasant sense impressions come and we hold on. So it's by way of highlighting that area, that tendency of mind so that we can pay close attention. We also get very attached to our bodies. Does it make any sense? What's going to happen to it? It will either get old and sick and die, or die young. (laughs) That's basically the alternative that we have. Isn't that true? And yet somehow we haven't made that truth, we haven't internalized it. In some sense we haven't realized it, even though we all know it. Because if we really knew it, there would not be attachment to this thing. It's a vehicle. You know, and it gets us around, and it enables us to see things, and hear things, and taste things, touch things. So it's very useful in certain regards. But attachment to it doesn't make sense. So again, the truth which liberates, it's not our efforts to be free, to begin to look at the truth of what this body is, to see the truth of the impermanence of it. One of the great teachings of being in India was the the rawness of all aspects of life. Because in our culture, we hide you know, the unpleasant sides. We don't have a, a very great familiarity with a dead body. Now, how many of us have hung out with dead bodies? Probably not too many of us. And yet in other cultures, for whatever reason, it's right out front. And one time I was swimming in the uh, Ganges. And I don't know, the tradition has it that it has some natural radioactivity in it that kills all germs. I don't know whether that's true or not. But as a, it was very hot and I just went in swimming. And there were corpses floating down. You know, it was just startling to me to see that. And it was just right out there in the burning guts and the corpses being put on the guts and so I think it's helpful for us at least to understand and to really experience the nature of this body so that we're not deceived by it. And again, some people hear this and think that it means that you disregard and you don't take care of it and that it's worthless and that's not it at all. It's a very valuable vehicle for our 
enlightenment, to take care of it, but not to get attached. A few years ago, there was an interesting, an interesting thing happened at the three-month course. We had a, this wonderful Cambodian monk, Mahagosananda, who's just full of metta and giggling all the time and smiling and laughing and he's just a very warm person. One night he came into the hall and he read from that book that Jack mentioned, the Vasudhimaga, and he read the contemplation of, of eating, of food, which basically was a description of what happens when we eat food. You know, we put the food in our mouth and we chew it and the saliva mixes with it and it gets all yucky, you know, and it goes down. And it's a very graphic description, you know, of exactly what happens, the whole process and how it comes out. And people heard that. And the common reaction was, why is there so much aversion towards food? And it was such an interesting projection of how we relate to the unpleasantness of things. There was no aversion at all. It was a simple description. You know, you put food in your mouth and this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And yet people's minds said, oh, disgusting. And, you know, why should we think of it like that? It's what happens. It's the truth which liberates, you know? <laughs> and sometimes it's unpleasant. <laughs> the great unpleasant truth. One, there was, I don't know who said it, it's a great line. Self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> it's largely true. Because it's seeing both what's pleasant and also what's unpleasant. But can we be there for it rather than having that, oh, you know, that's, an, that's a morbid attitude. It's not morbid. Actually, you can get into it. Okay, to take a look in the practice, in our lives, at these kinds of attachments. Attachments to sense pleasures, to when things are pleasant. Attachment to the body. Another great area of attachment where we get caught over and over and over again is the attachment we have to our opinions and views about things. We have so many opinions and so many viewpoints about everything. <laughs> you know, about the proper diet and about the proper clothing and about the proper environment and about the proper government and about the proper social structure and about the proper economic distribution and about this and about that, about proper enlightenment and proper practice. And, and all of those opinions and views basically have nothing to do with anything. Because it's the truth which liberates, not our opinions. 
It's not our opinions which liberate us. It's the experience of what actually is going on. In the third Zen patriarch, which is a wonderful little teaching, he says, it's the do not cherish opinions. Pardon. Do not seek the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. Do not seek the truth. You don't have to go after it. Only cease to cherish opinions. Because in that freedom from attachment to viewpoint, the truth reveals itself. It's right here all the time. We can see it. But so often we're wearing the filter of a particular viewpoint. This is also really helpful in establishing a respectful relationship with all other beings. Because, you know, we're all conditioned in our own particular way. We all have our own background, education, and upbringing, and experience, and so we all view reality through a certain, certain window. If we can honor that, it's not to discard that viewpoint, but if we can have the viewpoint without attachment to it, then it allows us to honor other viewpoints and see that everybody's viewing things from their particular window. And there's a mutual respect. How much conflict in the world arises because of attachment to an opinion, to an idea? Attachment to sense pleasures, to opinions, to viewpoints. The third area of attachment, which is particularly important to understand as you do your practice here, again what Trungpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism where somehow we pervert the practice into the strengthening of our ego. It's very easy. And it really takes looking at the motive of why we're doing things. How slowly can you go? Okay, why? Are you doing it because you want to do it? Are you doing it because you think you should be doing it? Are you doing it so everybody will see what a good meditator you are and how holy you are? There are lots of, lots of things can be going on behind that slow movement. Some may be very skillful, some totally unskillful. And there's nobody else who knows but you. You really have to look at your mind and see, okay, whatever I'm doing, whether whether you're sitting or walking or eating, pay attention to that motive in the mind. The only operative rule for practice is close attention. In whatever way, in whatever activity, however however you're being, it's close attention to what's happening. 
just as another example, sometimes we suggest that people just sit without moving. You know, and whatever comes, let me die. I'm going to sit, I'm not going to move until the bell rings. There are two ways of working with that kind of exercise. Doing it because you think you should do it, and then there'll be lots of problems that will create frustration and rebelliousness, and I'm not going to do it, and a whole little story in the mind. And the other way of doing it is because we want to do it. I want to do this, and I want to see what happens. And you can't pretend. You know, you can't pretend you want to do it if you don't want to do it. And so, so much of the practice really is honesty. Really being honest, settling back into the truth of what's happening for us in each moment. There's no hierarchy, there's no better or worse. Sometimes you sit and move, sometimes you sit and don't move. You learn from both of it. So it's very important to undertake the practice, especially one that's so refined and, and starts to work on such subtle levels of our being and of our mind, it's delicate. You know, we're going, it's like, it's like brain surgery. We're going into our experience in a very, very deep and subtle way. And so it has to be done with balance. It has to be done with proper understanding, a proper attitude. Because otherwise you can really do damage. You know, if it's done with a sense of spiritual materialism, look at me. So again, it's just something to be aware of and to look at in oneself. The last attachment, the biggest one, the fundamental one, the root one, the cause of all the others, is the attachment we have to this idea of self. Attachment to the concept of self, of I. We live our lives <coughs> conditioned by that idea. We take birth because of that idea. It's a powerful force. It's the driving force in our lives. That sense of self, that sense of I. And that's why the practice works on such, on so many levels, but it works to really examine that root conditioning of how we view ourselves and how we view the world. A reminder, it's the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. And so you don't have to struggle with getting rid of the sense of self, or getting rid of the sense of I, or squashing the ego. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with seeing the true nature of our experience. As we pay close attention, we begin to see that everything's changing. Everything's changing. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, consciousness, sensations, on all levels, as that awareness of impermanence becomes more refined, automatically 
the idea of self begins to dissolve. I'd like to do a, a short experiment right now. Just, if you would, could you just touch the floor? Just in a relaxed way, just close your eyes for a moment and settle into the experience of it. Stay there, stay focused. Pressure, coolness, or warmth, however, hardness or softness. Stay right in those sensations. In the awareness of those sensations, when you're right there, who are you? Low heat element. What are we? Now the self disappears in the closeness of attention to the experience. The self disappears because it's not there in the first place. It was only a concept which we've slipped onto an over-experience. So you see how direct, how very direct the practice is. As soon as we come right into the moment, whether it's with seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting, or sensing, or even thinking, if we can be aware of it as a thought, without getting lost in the content of it, there's no self, there's no I, there's no ego. It's what's called momentary enlightenment. In that moment is freedom, there's just what there is. You know, in past years, as I would give talks, I sort of had a sort of a, a set talk, which I got into and gave, and they were very well-timed. And then they kind of went right along in a pretty precise and clear way, and they usually ended at 45 minutes. These were just the first two noble truths. So the last two will have to wait. <laughs> some other time. <laughs> to see the suffering in our lives, that is, where the suffering lies. You know, how we're relating to our experience. It's not in our experience. The experience itself is okay, whatever it is. It's painful, it's pleasant, it's nice, it's not nice, it doesn't matter. It's it's fine. Look to see always when there is some kind of tension or conflict or struggle. It's not, the conflict or struggle is not in what's happening, but it's in our relationship to what's happening. We're either clinging or we're condemning. To see that, 
and to begin to see carefully those areas where we're very conditioned to cling and condemn, to sense desires and opinions and spiritual materialism, that self-image, and at the very root to begin to see the attachment to the idea of self and letting go of that. And letting go simply by close attention. The letting go happens by itself. To close, I'd like to read one poem which many of you have heard before, but it expresses, I think, in a very beautiful way, the quality or the the ambiance of attention. Because really attentiveness is a light and delicate quality. It's not a heavy and somber one. Just to relax, to soften into the moment with as much care as possible, but in a delicate way. The poem is called Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda, famous poet from Chile. Now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.